Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, howdy, Faith Church. Joining us online, welcome. If you're here on campus, really grateful that you're here. We often ask ourselves these two questions, whether we realize it or not, what's wrong with me? What's going on inside of me that's wrong, that's out of line? And what's wrong with the world? Whether consciously or subconsciously, we're asking this question. We're thinking these thoughts. We all do. We all wonder, what's wrong inside me? Why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I act the way I act? Why has this happened to me? Why is this happening around me? Why is this happening to people I love? And then we sort of broaden out, zoom out to the world and go, why is the world so wrong? What's going on? Why the violence? Why the terrorism? Why the suffering? Why the pollution? Why the injustice? Why the pain and heartache? What's going on? What's wrong with me? What's wrong in the world? We're asking ourselves these questions and we're thinking these thoughts, again, consciously or subconsciously. It's kind of where our mind goes at some point in our lives and we can kind of get stuck thinking these thoughts and go, what the heck is going on? And quickly following these questions is this one, where is God? So I'm looking at myself and I know there's something inside me that's off or wrong or I'm struggling. And I look at the world and I see something is off and I know something's wrong and I'm struggling and I go, where are you, God? If you're real, if you're just, if you're loving, if you care, why did you make me this way? Why do I live in this station of life? Why was I born into this family? Why do these bad things happen to me? Don't you care? Don't you love me? Why are you letting these things happening around the globe? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you speak up? Why don't you stop what's happening? Why don't you do something different? Where are you? What's going on? And again, conscious or unconscious, we're thinking these thoughts. We hear that in our minds, and sometimes we're afraid to say it out loud, and what the book of Romans is doing in its first chapter is trying to answer these three questions for us. And Paul, as we march through this as a family together, he's answering these questions for us, and, and the answers that he gives aren't easy to hear. And so the, to the first two questions, like what's wrong with me and what's wrong with the world, his answer, the Bible answer, the Christianity answer is sin. Sin is wrong with me and you, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we have failed to align our lives, our attitudes, our actions to God. We have rejected God in our hearts. We've all done it. We've rejected God in our homes. We've all done it. And this is called sin in the Bible. And Paul says that's a tough diagnosis to hear, that it's my rejection of God that's wrong with me. But misdiagnosis is malpractice. For him not to diagnose the problem is not to be a good doctor. If the doctor knows something's wrong and doesn't tell us, that's malpractice and it's destructive and it's hurtful. So Paul comes out in Romans chapter one and says, here's the problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's what's right about the world. God loves us so much that he sends Jesus into this world, right? So we've talked about this, that not only does Paul diagnose the problem is our sin, he provides the remedy and tells us about Jesus, right? He tells us that, man, and this is what the Bible says over and over, we're far worse as humans individually than we're willing to admit, but God's grace is far greater than we could ever imagine, 
right? And so this is the, the remedy comes to us in Christ, that God loves us so much, even though we're all train wrecks, right? We're busted and broken and we've fallen short of God's glory, but he loves us so much to send Jesus. So maybe in a very simple way, and maybe you go, it's too religious and too simplistic, but what's wrong with me and what's wrong with the world? The Bible answer is sin. And where is God? He's here in the person and the work of Christ. He comes alongside us to be near us and next to us and to pay for the sins of the world on his shoulders that we might have new life. And we're taking this in the next chapter. Let's just keep going as we work our way through Romans chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're heading. Romans 1, 28 through 32. Open up electronic copy, follow along on your paper copy. And maybe you haven't heard the sermons before this. I would say to you, the last couple sermons all build on each other. And so if you haven't watched or heard those sermons, I'd encourage you to go back and listen in our online library so you can kind of see what's happening as Paul works through, in some ways, what's really difficult diagnosis and yet really hopeful as we lean in together. In Romans chapter one, as a review in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. And he says, why? Because we suppress the truth and exchange God's God for cheap substitutes. That all of us, God is plain to us, the Bible says, that there is a maker, a creator, and we like to push that truth down. We suppress the truth that there is a God, someone who made all things and holds all things together. Because if we believe that and actually listen to that, it would mean we'd have to obey him and follow him and honor him. But we don't want to obey and follow and honor someone outside us. So we push that truth down. We suppress that truth and we exchange God for cheap substitutes. So we don't want a God who knows us and tells us what to do. We don't want to answer to him. And so we exchange him for cheap substitutes of sex or money or comfort or safety or politics or patriotism. We have all these gods that we've created and we hope that we're going to be satisfied. But any of these gods, they're tyrants. Money is a tyrant. Sex is a tyrant. Comfort and safety is a tyrant. It will enslave you and hold you down and destroy you and leave you unsatisfied. And God says, I hate that. And the word wrath is God's intense hatred towards sin. He hates these things because he knows that when we live in deception and in lies, it's going to deceive and destroy us. When we exchange him for cheap substitutes that won't satisfy us, it will destroy us. And he hates that. That's his wrath. He goes, I hate that you would do that. So two weeks ago, we talked and said, well, how is the wrath of God being revealed? Like if the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, what does that look like today? And it's this repeated phrase in verse 24 and 26 and 28. It says that he gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. And Jersey Joe interpretation is like, he gives you what you want. If you want to suppress the truth, he goes, okay. If you want to exchange the truth for cheap substitute, he's like, okay, he knows how great he is. He knows he's the only one who'll satisfy you. But if, if you won't take him by invitation and he invites you to follow him, but if you, he's not going to force himself on you. He, he loves you way too much to overpower you. But he's like, if that's what you want, go ahead, do that. Go ahead. If that's what you want. And so in verse 27, Romans 1, 27, we see suppressing the truth and exchanging God, for cheap substitutes, has a cost. It costs us individually, and it costs us collectively. That the wages of sin, the penalty or price of sin, rejecting God, ignoring God, de-godding God, finding cheap substitutes, thinking they're going to work, living in lies, it comes at a cost. And that cost isn't just 
personal, it's collective. You see, God is not your codependent, enabling friend that sees your sin or my sin as cute. He sees it as costly, and he knows it will destroy you, and he hates that. And so he loves you way too much to just let you go skate free and go, well, isn't that cute, Joe, when you slander people? Like, no, that's costing you. And it's not just going to cost you, Joe. It's going to cost your wife. It's going to cost your children. It's going to cost your church, your community, your nation. It's not just a person. Our sin is not personal and private. We think it's personal and private, but it's actually collective. It's against God, and all of us pay the cost. And this is where we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Happy Sunday, everyone. Verse 28, Romans 1, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you today for your word that is alive and active and will guide us into truth. Would you use it to comfort us and convict us and lead us and teach us? Would you help us to align our lives with your life, to align our hearts with your heart and to see that you are the source of eternal life while the remedy is dark and difficult that we're all broken and sinful or that the diagnosis is dark and difficult. The remedy is Jesus and he changes everything. And so help us to lean into that this moment, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Verse 28 starts out and says, Furthermore, just as they did not think worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. This word, furthermore, is signaling, I believe, in the text a little bit of a shift from our individual acts and decisions to what's happening collectively, societally. He's, he says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, this is another way of Paul saying, you guys suppress the truth. You push down and hold down the knowledge of God. You put your fingers in the ears and pretend like he's not real and not exist. You push him down and you suppress him. And what does God do? So he gave them over to a depraved mind. Here's the results. It's like we push it down. We suppress it. We go, oh, there's no God. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to follow him. We push that down. And he goes, now here's the results. It's, it's a depraved mind. And that, that word depraved means twisted. It means perverse. It means blind. It means antisocial. It means anti-human, not human, dehumanizing. There's this sense that our individual decisions lead up to a collective dehumanizing of our society and our world. Now, what's helpful for me as I unpack Romans chapter one is kind of look at patterns in the Bible. And I wanna just share with you this pattern that happens in the Bible that will help us understand Romans chapter one. 
all of us are sinful, right? Every single one of us, nobody better, nobody worse. We're all messed up and broken. We all do sinful acts, which means we make individual decisions that are wrong, that don't align with God, that reject God, that ignore God. That's different than a sinful lifestyle, right? And so when I slander you and call you a dope, that's pretty nice, actually. I would call you worse, but I'm on camera. Um, when I slander you and call you a dope, that's a decision, a sinful act. That's different than me slandering you over and over and over, which makes me a slander er er er. Right? Like there's a difference between an act, a decision, a sinful decision that I make versus doing something over and 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 over again. So the Bible says, don't get drunk. If I make that decision, that's a sinful act, which is very different than being a drunkard, someone who has a lifestyle of getting drunk. An adulterer is someone in the Bible that doesn't have sex in the way God designed it. God says that my design for sex is for you to love one person and to be committed to them in a lifelong relationship between men and women. Two men, one man and oh, I'm messing up my words, one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage forever, and that's God's design for sex. If I reject that and I commit adultery, that's a single act, which is different than becoming an adulterer, doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so you'll see this pattern in the Bible that there's this one thing to make a sinful decision we all do. It's another thing to create a lifestyle of sinful decisions. And it's not like before God, any of this is all sin. It's all messed up. It's all brokenness, right? But with each decision to continue to do something wrong, the cost goes up. So if I make a decision to get drunk this afternoon, there's a cost to me and to my wife and to my sons. If I get drunk every night, the cost to me and to my wife and my sons goes up, right? Because it's no longer an act of drunk, drink, getting drunk. It's I'm a drunk and the cost goes up. There's a difference between an act that's wrong, not before God, it's all wrong. But the human cost that happens this side of eternity, because I do something over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so when we bring that back into Romans chapter one, when he says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, they pushed the knowledge of God down, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's this twistedness to do what they ought not to do. It's moving beyond a sinful act to a lifestyle of doing something that rejects God over and over and over and over and over again, where the cost is going up to me and to the people around me, which was what gets us to verse 29, where he says, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I mean, isn't this what, what our society and culture looks like today, right? There's 21 things that he's saying. There's individual sinful acts that we all make that lead up to this over and over and over and over again that leads to a lifestyle. And I want you to note a couple words. He says, filled with every kind of wickedness, full of envy, 
they invent ways of doing evil. Right? This, I made a sinful choice. I did something wrong. I called you a dope. But I do it over and over again, and I'm filling up with that to the point that I'm full. And now I invent ways of doing evil slander because it started with a decision and it led to a lifestyle and now I'm filled and I'm full and I'm being creative with my slanderous language. I'm inventing ways. And God's like, this, this is what's happening in our society. This is what's going on. It's moved beyond for you and me in action. Now it's become a lifestyle and it's so filled. And, and here's what's unbelievable. We're created in the image of God and we're designed to be filled by the Spirit full of God, to use our creative abilities to do good and not evil, but we've traded our purpose and our identity and our image. We've suppressed the truth and exchanged it for a lie, and now you see what's going on in our society. I don't know if this has happened to you or not, but you see something in the news and you go, how is this humanly possible that this is happening? Something so atrocious, something so vile, something so violent, something so sexualized, something so crude, something so monstrous that you go, how could a human being do that to another human being? It's when we go from a sinful act to a sinful lifestyle, fill up and full, and we become innovative with evil. And this is what's going on in our society, and it starts with me, and it starts with you. He moves on in verse 32 and says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, there's something inside all of us that know right and wrong. We know it inside, and we know that there's a penalty, a price, a cost to it. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Not only continue... This is me making a sinful choice that continues and continues and continues over and over again to the point where I get to approving and wanting other people to do the same thing, advocating for evil, applauding evil. It moves beyond an individual act to a lifestyle and an approval and an applauding. Maybe you've heard, uh, you're so, maybe you've said this or you've heard people say, my conscience is killing me. Have you heard that? My conscience is killing me, right? So when I was a little kid, I remember one day I was at the hardware store with my dad and I saw a nail on the floor. So I picked up the nail and put it in my pocket because I was going to build a tree house, right? And I needed nails. And there it is. It's free, right? Like, what's the big deal? So I pick it up and I got home and I grabbed that nail in my back pocket and I felt something inside me that said that was wrong. And so I went to my dad and I I said, Dad, I took this from the hardware store. Now, my dad's one of those old school cusses who, who took me back, marched me back to the hardware store, and I had to, as a little kid, walk up to the counter and go, I stole this nail. I mean, and the guy at the counter is going, like, saying to my dad, like, let, whatever, the kid's like four, like, let him go. Like, let it. And my dad's like, no, he needs to own this because my dad didn't want me to let one sinful act become... A burglar, -er 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 -er, right? Because I steal one nail and it goes by and then we don't do anything about it. And then what happens? 
I become a klepto, right? I become someone who's burglarizing all the time and you'll see me in the morning call, right? Because one sinful act, I had a conscious. We all have a conscious that's given to us by God that says something is right or wrong. And when that conscience comes up and we go, this is wrong, if we don't do anything about it and we push that feeling down, the cost goes up. The shame might go down, but the cost goes up for all of us, not just you. It goes up for all of us. And so here's what happens. I push that truth down, that conscience inside me that I've rejected God, that I want a different God, that I'm a slanderer and I'm just going to keep slandering. I'm going to steal. I'm going to keep stealing. I push that feeling down and then there's safety in numbers, isn't there? And so if I find myself another group of people that love taking nails from hardware stores around the Lehigh Valley who tell me it's not a big deal if you steal nails, what's the big deal? There's safety in numbers. There's comfort in other people who are doing the same thing. And so we've designed clubs and churches and communities around activity that God's like, if you do that, it's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to harm you. While you might feel there's safety in numbers, that comfort that you're getting is false and it's destructive. It's going to destroy you. There's safety in numbers. You know, I have all these people that tell me what I'm doing is fine, right? And so we suppress the truth and exchange God for a cheap substitute. And we wonder why we got ourselves sideways. And so one theologian describing this says this. He says, sin tumbles over sin with dizzying speed and the human desire to rebel against God seems to be the only unifying principle of an otherwise chaotic activity, right? So, so my sinful actions leads to a lifestyle and then I surround myself with a community of people that say it's okay and it seems to be the only thing unifying all of us is that we reject God and we don't care about God and we ignore God and chaos ensues chaos. So if you zoom out of Romans chapter 1, verse 23, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, you might say this as a sort of high-level summary. Sin, all of us do it. No one better, no one worse. Before God, we're all rebels. We've all fallen short. No good sin, bad sin. We're all a mess. We all choose to suppress and push down the truth, and we all choose to exchange God for cheap substitutes. All of us do it. And God says, Joe, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. His judgment, his right action at this is, I'm not going to force you to love me. I'm not going to force my truth upon you. I'm not going to force you to worship me. You can do whatever the heck you want. I will give you what you want. If you want to steal nails every place you go, go ahead and see what that happens. I'm so far superior to you doing that. I love you so much. But if that's what you want to do, go ahead, And which leads to a cost of individual and societal disintegration and destruction. And so we're these composite beings made up of physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, relational components. And when we ignore God and suppress his truth and exchange it for chief substitute, the parts of us get disintegrated and frayed in every direction. And it leads to our individual destruction. And societally, you see the disintegration of homes, 
disintegration of schools, disintegration of politics, disintegration of entertainment, disintegration of the world. Why is it happening? You ask the question, why? What's going on? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with our world? This might be an oversimplistic answer, but this is what's wrong with me. It's what's wrong with us. It's what's wrong with the world. And you might go, this is too simplistic. Like, okay, do whatever you want. You can ignore me and ignore the Bible. It's fine. This is what's going on and why there's violence. The sexualization of everything, confusion, division, why there's struggles in the environment, struggles in the justice system, struggles in the political system, struggles in the economic system, struggles every which way and everywhere. It's because our society is being disintegrated individually and as a corporate body. And you go, where is God? God in his love and justice is saying, if you want this, you can do it. But where is Jesus? He's right here. He's not surprised by this. He walks right into it, right? Jesus comes knowing that this is what the world is made up of and knowing that we all do this. And he walks right into human suffering and human chaos and human problems. It's so incredible that Jesus would show up and not avoid the mess, but enter the mess. Now, here's what's interesting. If the Bible says that God hates sin and his wrath will be revealed against sinners, you would think when the Son of God shows up on planet Earth that he's walking into every bar and every casino and every strip club and every politician's office and hitting them like a linebacker going, you are violating the law of God. Walking into bars and strip clubs where there's injustice and corruption, where there's greed and disobedience, you would think Jesus would tackle that while he's on planet earth and just annihilate all those despicable, depraved people in our society that are bringing this place to hell in a handbasket. But is that what Jesus does? I mean, honestly, maybe you haven't noticed this, but Jesus reserves his harshest comments to religious people. Listen, you judge for yourself. When the son of man shows up on planet earth, to represent God. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites of the law. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without rejecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, he says, you brood of vipers. How would you escape being condemned to hell? My gosh, Jesus. Seriously. Why would he do this? Woe to you. Because it's so easy 
for religious people to look down their noses and see all the depravity of the world. We're going to hell in a handbasket because of this person and this type and them. And Jesus takes the gloves off with the religious elite and says, woe to you. You look down your nose at other people and you don't see your own brokenness. Woe to you. You're twice a child of hell. You're condemned because your insides are foul and dirty and you think you're superior because the outside looks so religious and pure, condemning everyone else and not seeing your own hypocrisy. Woe to you, he says, to wake us up to who he is and what he wants of this world. So I love Romans chapter 8. If we skip forward a couple chapters, Paul says this in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? Right? And so this is all of Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, getting up to chapter 8. And in chapter 8 in this moment, he's actually talking about suffering that's happening in the world. What shall we say in response to the suffering that's happening, that all the wickedness, all the suppression of truth, all the exchanging of God for cheap substitutes, what shall we say about all of this if God is for us, who can be against us? Because even in his giving over, he loves us. He gives us what we want. That's his love. He says, I'm not going to force myself on you. You don't want me. You don't have to have me. I'm not going to make you worship me. That's not love. He says, I'm for you. I want to give you choices. If you want to choose not me, go ahead. It'll cost you. I hate that. But if that's what you want to do. But then look what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Oh my gosh. You see, God gives us over to what we want, but he never gives up on us. He gives us over to what we want, but he never gives up on us. Even more so, he gives his one and only son to die on a cross for our foul, wicked selves. He gave up his son for your lifestyle decisions for your sinful actions, for my burglaring of nails as a kid. He gave his son up. So he gives us our choices. He lets us do what we want. He never gives up for us. And he gives his only son to die on a cross, to rise again, to do something beautiful. Jesus is going to integrate what's been disintegrated and going to restore what's been destroyed. This is who Jesus is. That all the disintegration that happens to me individually because of the sinful choices I make, the sinful lifestyle I live, all of those things are disintegrating me. And Jesus is like, I love you so much. I want to put you back together. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll put you back together. I'll restore you. I'll take what was broken and make it beautiful again. Come to me. And he wants to do that collectively in our world. He wants to put our world back together. So there's all this craziness that's happening. My heart breaks for what's happening in Israel right now. My heart breaks for what's happening in Ukraine. My heart breaks when there's children in parts of the world that don't have clean water or food. My heart breaks for the environmental destruction that's taking place. My heart breaks for all the injustice that people are experiencing. There's so many problems, so many confusion, so much pain, so much heartache, so much chaos, every which direction, it's problems. And somehow I think that if we get the next right person on the school board, we're going to fix everything, guys. What if we just get a speaker of the house? 
we're going to have everything. If we could just get the right president, then everything. If the Supreme Court is the right people, everything is going to be great. All the problems are going to go away. It's going to be great, everyone. And there's nothing wrong. Man, if you want to run for school board, run for school board. Absolutely, we need great people in every aspect of society, in politics, in government, in medicine, in finance. Great people. But the greatest people will never solve our problem. Political systems won't fix this. Jesus fixes this. Jesus fixes this. So I want to uh, shut up soon. But I want to turn to the last page of the Bible. The last page of the Bible. Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, I, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, idulterers and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Our God is both loving and just and giving all of us options all the time to choose him or to reject him. And he gives us what we want. So if we reject him in this life, we will have eternity without him. He gave us what we wanted. We don't want him. And he's like, okay, it breaks my heart. But if you don't want me, you cannot have me for all eternity, but if you want me, you can have me now and for all eternity, forever, right? And so this is realizing Jesus is integrating and he's going to take what's wrong with me and what's wrong with the world and he's going to fix it. This is what he does. This is who he is. No one else can do this. But Jesus, the way I'm pulled apart and disintegrated, the way I'm making choices that are actions that are sinful, and even pursuing lifestyles that are wrong, that's pulling me apart, Jesus wants to make me whole again. He wants to make you whole again. He wants to reintegrate us. He wants to fix us. And he's going to do that collectively with our society. While we wait for him to do that, we should love mercy and justice and act and do things, knowing that at the end of the day, these problems are not going to be fixed until Jesus returns. When he does, he's going to make all things right and new while we wait for him, right? And so what do you do? You look at Jesus. You invite Jesus into these spaces. You invite Jesus into your lifestyle, Jesus into your decisions. You invite Jesus into your thinking about what's going on in the chaos of the world. You invite Jesus's word to guide you into all truth. You follow him and obey him because he's the only one who can change anything and everything in you and anything and everything all around us. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word that's true and right and good. It's hard. The diagnosis is difficult, but the remedy is sweet. It's Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. God, right now, many of us are choosing sinful things. We're wrong. 
we failed to align our lives to you. We've rejected you. Help us to see it and confess it. God, some of us are pursuing lifestyles of rejecting you and finding safety in numbers with other people that agree, and it's destroying us. Please help us. You invite us to come to you when we're weary and heavy laden, when we're tired and broken, when we feel the weight of our sin and feel the weight of the world on our shoulders, we can come to you and you'll make our burden light and you'll help us. So please, God, wherever my friends are right now, whether online or here in the room, whatever they're thinking and feeling, may we bring our whole selves to you. May we look to you. May we follow you. May we trust you because you will make all things right and new. And that can start today individually. And we can be a part of the solution in this world, not a part of the problem. Help us, God. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.